Uh, folks, I have mentioned to you before in here some, uh, some great text to get. Uh, Wayne Gruden is probably one of my favorites. You can go online, Amazon, and this can come right to your, any of these come right to your doorstep. Uh, one of them, <laughs> but I've had this one a while. But uh, anyway, this, this is excellent. He, he's just, he writes, he deals with the issues, but he writes in such layman's language uh, too. And if you want the really, I mean, he has, he has a simplified version of this. I think it says Christian Doctrine by Wayne Gruden. Uh, it's the same thing as this. It's just a much abbreviated form. And then still even one more abbreviated. His most simple one is Christian Beliefs. And it's just a tiny little paperback. You know, this would be good for Sunday school lessons or something. And uh, so he mentions this, obviously, his most basic. Uh, so he does three of them. And then one of your Baptist theologians, he has another big fat one uh, called Systematic Theology by Millard Erickson. And this is his scaled-down version of that. Uh, I would highly recommend any layman in the church get that. Christian Doctrine by Millard Erickson. Extra handouts, okay? Okay. Jamie, I tell you what, I'm going to let you have several, and if you see anybody come in, if you would get them on, I would appreciate it. Thank you. So that's another great one. Uh, one, of the, one of the very simple ones, too, is uh, basic, basic Theology by Charles Ryrie. That would be another one to order, Charles Ryrie, R-Y-R-I-E. So, anyway, but, you know, probably if you were looking for a good simplified one without getting into one of the heavier ones, probably Millard Erickson's Christian Doctrine. But, again, his, he's got a big one like this, Millard Erickson does, which is the fuller version. And then he's got one that's that size. If, if I just had to go with one, I mean, personally, I would go with this one. Uh, Michael Horton teaches at Westminster out in the California campus. Uh, he's got a big monster one, uh, Theology for Pilgrims. And then he's got a smaller version that's about this size. Michael Horton, H-O-R-T-O-N. I don't recommend his big monster. Uh, it's probably a little too technical for most people. Uh, anyway, those are just some of the ones I would recommend. If you're coming in late, if you did not, do you have one of the forms? Okay, okay. Well, uh, we ready to get started? Is everybody to where you can see? Okay. Well, Jerry Zook, if you would open our time in prayer. Amen. Thank you. Somebody read Jude, verse 3 of, of the book of Jude. Jude, 
And somebody else, while, they're fi- while one person's finding that, somebody else finds 2 Timothy 2.2. 2 Timothy 2.2. 2. Who, who has the Jude passage? And those who read, if you would read it very loudly and clearly. Who has Jude? Okay, Richard. Verse 3 of Jude. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Uh, somebody read who has Second Timothy two two. Who has that? Go ahead. Okay, entrust to reliable men. Paul says the things you've heard from him. A definite body of doctrine. Uh, pass on to others who will be reliable, who will teach others. And then, of course, in Acts chapter 2 and verse 42, it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching or the apostles' doctrine and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. So a definite body of Christian doctrine. I think it goes without saying that not everything is Christian doctrine, right? That's obvious. Uh, There are some things that make for Christian doctrine, some things that don't. Of course, we believe that the 66 books of the Bible, the canon of Scripture, uh, is the revelation that we have from God that He wants us to have, and Christian doctrine is drawn from that. Uh, look at your uh, look at your sheet, your handout. Uh, Martin Luther said, "We are called theologians just as we are called Christians." I've said to you before on Sunday mornings, and I'll mention this a little later on tonight. The word theology just simply means sayings about God, uh, theo and. Logos or Logia. Logia would be sayings. Logos would be words, written words. So words or sayings about God. As Al Mohler and Russell Moore point out, two of our Southern Baptist uh, educators, it's a very sad thing that happened uh, about a hundred years ago or so that, that theology got locked away inside of the classroom in the university or the seminary. Theology belongs to the church. Uh, nothing wrong with it being in the, in the classroom, but theology belongs to the church because theology, again, is words or sayings about God. And what are we supposed to be doing in church? Talking about God. So again, Martin Luther says we're called theologians just as we are called Christians. Everybody has a worldview and everybody has a theology. Whether you realize it or not, you're a theologian and you have a worldview. 
Now, it may not be a good worldview or a good theology. Hopefully, yours is. But everybody has a theology and everybody has a worldview. Uh, John Calvin said, Nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say, true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves, but while joined by many bonds... Which one proceeds and brings forth the other is not easy to discern. And John R. W. Stott said, One of the most neglected aspects of the quest for holiness is in the mind. It is by the renewal of our mind that our character and behavior become transformed. What's the Bible say? As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. And then, uh, I I love this little quote by, by an old... Uh, he's from several hundred years back. Uh, he was an English Puritan and theologian, William Perkins. Theology is the science of living blessedly forever. Isn't that great? You don't seem too excited about that. <laughs> well, let's talk tonight in this introductory session about some inadequate suppositions. Uh, first of all, there would be the separation, the separation of doctrine and practice. It's the thought that says, I just want to be practical. Give me the 10 steps to a better marriage. Don't give me Millard Erickson or Wayne Gruden's systematic theology. Give me the five how to steps, 10 how to steps. Folks, the whole of the Christian life and experience is our response to God's truth. Amen? Another inadequate supposition, much like the first inadequate one is, the one that says, I just want to love Jesus. Isn't it enough for a Christian just to love Jesus? What would you say to that? Depends on the Jesus. Not everybody, not everybody knows the real Jesus, right? Our love for Jesus has got to be informed. We need to base our relationship with him on the truth that he reveals to us in his word. You know, think about the children of Israel. You think the children of Israel, when they got out into the wilderness and Moses was up on the mountain and they demanded Aaron to give them a God to serve and, and what Aaron do? He collected all their jewelry and made that golden calf. Do you reckon the children of Israel would have said that they loved God? Sure, they would have said they loved God. But were they really worshiping God? No. No. So not everything that claims to be of God is of God. So proper knowledge, proper doctrine and theology helps us to know who the God of the Bible is and how he has worked in the lives of his people down through the ages. So knowledge is very important in that sense. A third inadequate supposition is one that puts all the emphasis on the head. It's the thought, I just want to be smarter than everybody else. But as Paul pointed out to the Corinthians, what does knowledge alone do? It puffs up. 
The goal of knowledge, as he said in 1 Corinthians, is what? It's love. Love of God and love of the children of God. And so anything short of that is an inadequate model. J.I. Packer says theology is for doxology and devotion. That is the praise of God and the practice of godliness. Now look at some of these verses I've given you. And I need to look at your study guide to see what I did give you. <laughs> okay? Look at 1 Corinthians 14, 20. And, and we see there how the Bible is encouraging theological thinking. He says, brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. And then Acts 2.42, I read that a moment ago. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And then in 2 Timothy 1.13, Paul said, Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Also in the upper room, I want you to remember, Jesus gave his disciples a lesson in soteriology. Talking about matters of salvation in the Trinity and in the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Right? Paul gave the Philippians uh, a lesson. A lesson in the incarnation, the death. The exaltation of Jesus in Philippians 2. And then he gave the Corinthians a lesson about the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. Wayne Gruden says, Systematic theology is any study that answers the question, What does the whole Bible teach us today about any given topic? Now, notice, notice his emphasis. Look at what he says. Why is is that important? Say what? People take things out of context. Picking and choosing. Sure. Progressive revelation. Yeah. Progressive revelation just meaning as we read our Bibles... God reveals more and more and more to us through uh, the Bible. We, in other words, uh, you know, if you're reading Genesis and Exodus, you get more than just Genesis, right? Uh, if you're reading the whole Old Testament, you get more than just the five books of the first five books, the Pentateuch. If you're reading all the Bible, all 66 books, then you're getting more than the Old Testament. You're getting old and new. So. Through the periods of time, God revealed more and more to his children what he wanted them to know. That's progressive revelation. Okay? So sure, by reading the whole Bible, as Jim's pointed out, we we see that unfolding. So that's the importance of, of whole Bible. Now, people wrongly assume that in systematic theology that we are forcing 
some type of artificial structure or system on the Bible. Now that's a faulty understanding. Uh, I suppose in the case of those without a high view of Scripture, that could be true. Uh, But that's not our purpose or goal. The goal of the systematic theologian should be to say only what the Bible says. In systematic theology, we're simply organizing the biblical data into topics and categories for the purpose of easier study and reflection. That's all we're doing in systematic theology. Systematic theology, I think it's obvious too. It involves studying doctrine. Millard Erickson says Christian doctrine is simply statements of the most fundamental beliefs the Christian has. Beliefs about the nature of God, about his action, about us who are his creatures, and about what he has done to bring us into relationship with himself. Now another word, another term for systematic uh, theology that's been used down through the ages but has primarily been used maybe in in Catholic circles uh, but it is the word dogmatic theology. Dogmatic theology. The word dogma is a synonym referring to doctrine. Uh, I think probably in addition to the Roman Catholics, uh, the Lutheran, Lutheran theologians uh, have used that more. Now, closely associated with the study of doctrine is also the study of what? Ethics. Theology focuses on how we are to think. What does ethics focus upon? How we are to act. How we are to live. And so theology and ethics go together. Theology is the foundation of ethics. And ethics is the outgrowth of theology. It's not by accident if you have the ESV study Bible. it's, It's not by accident that at the back of that Bible where all the articles are. And the section on Christian doctrine, what comes right after Christian doctrine? Ethics. There's probably 40 pages uh, in the study notes at the back of the Bible. uh, 40 pages on doctrine or theology. And then the next 40 pages on Christian ethics. It's no accident that that it's organized that way. Now, folks, rather than looking at doctrinal matters in a, in a dry and disconnected way, we, we need to see that systematic theology deals with issues that are fundamental to life, fundamental to salvation, fundamental to heaven and to eternity. Is that important to you? I hope so. Questions like, who am I? What is the purpose of life? Is is there a God? How do I know Him? What's His purpose in creation? Questions like that. That's what theology deals with. As I pointed out, the study of doctrine is known as 
theology. Literally a word about God or sayings about God. But now, systematic theology uh, covers things like Christology. Now, what is Christology? There's lots of ology words. What's Christology? The person and work of Jesus Christ. What's pneumatology? The study of the Holy Spirit. The person and work of the Holy Spirit. Ecclesiology. What's that? Study of the church, things like church government, church polity, church structure, things of that nature. Eschatology, what's eschatology a study of? End time things. So theology is the main category and those others are the subcategories of theology. Okay, Christology, pneumatology etc., etc., all those ologies would be the subcategories of theology. Now, typically, if you look at the chart that I gave you, you'll find studies in systematic theology are arranged as follows. Uh, introductory matters, the word that refers to that is prolegomena. Uh, first words, first things. Okay, you buy a theology textbook and you open it up and the introduction and the first chapter, they're just going to be sort of setting the, the groundwork and sort of getting you used to uh, the theological framework of things, prolegomena. And then uh, the Bible, bibliology, and then God is theology proper. Some will put uh, theology proper ahead of Bibliology, tell you what, let's go ahead and cut off our cell phones if you don't mind. I know I hear one going off now, but anyway, if you'd silence those, I certainly would appreciate it. Uh, some will put God first, some will put the Bible first. Uh, and, and no judgment call on either one of those, okay? Where do we learn about God? From the Bible, okay? And then uh, humanity. Is what? Anthropology. Sin is harmatiology. Christ, as I mentioned before, Christology, the Holy Spirit, pneumatology, salvation, soteriology, church, ecclesiology, last things, eschatology. Uh, now, don't be embarrassed about it. If this is the first time you've heard some of these words, raise your hand. Just help me see where, oh, okay, first time you've heard these, okay. I just kind of wanted to get a feel for the audience. So good. I've given you some, uh, should we have a, uh, a terminology pop quiz next week? No? Now, y'all, by the way, let me see, see all these categories. Uh, bibliology, theology proper, anthropology, so forth and so on. These, these are the categories we're going to be talking about in the coming weeks. Okay? Tonight's just an introductory. I'm just setting the table tonight. But, you know, we'll come one night and we'll talk about Christology. We'll come another night and talk about pneumatology. We'll talk about ecclesiology. Thing. So I, I do want you to know we're going to get into each one of these things. Tonight I'm just kind of setting the, setting the table. But uh, that's sort of, that's the terminology 
uh, that is uh, used. Okay, here's a, here's a question for you. Theology differs from religion. How so? Very good, very good. <laughs> uh, theology, as she's indicated, theology focuses on God. Religion is more centered on man and how man has lived out his, his faith. Uh, it's popular in secular universities uh, across the land to have departments of religion. Some of these schools that now have departments of religion, decades and decades and decades ago, they were departments of theology. But now they're departments of religion in the secular university. Because secular university is, is looking at the religions of man, which is a lot more than Christianity. Whereas in the Christian faith, theology is the study of the God of the Bible. Okay? So, major difference. Am I moving too fast tonight? No? Okay. Uh, look, at, look at your back page. Theology is biblical, or it should be, because it takes its primary content from the Old and New Testaments, okay? Now, create, as I put here in your notes, creation itself is an open book. What do we call creation? What, what kind of revelation is creation? General, general revelation. General revelation that the heavens even declare the glory of God. General revelation that, that all men are given. Special revelation would be God's written word and his living word, the Lord Jesus. So see, in, in, in our lesson on revelation, we'll, we'll talk about both general revelation and special revelation. But it's true, creation is an open book. But it is God's word that tells us how to be saved and how to grow as Christians. The creation can tell you that there is a God, but the creation itself cannot tell you what the plan of salvation is. To know the plan of salvation, you need special revelation. Okay. Theology is systematic. Systematic theology seeks to understand what all 66 books of the Bible say about a given topic. So nothing magical about that word systematic we're just trying to organize the different thoughts in the Bible the different doctrines in the Bible what the whole Bible reveals about those doctrines and, and, and 
here's, here's why that can help us a great deal. If I said, go home this week, and I want you to cover the whole Bible uh, and tell me what the Bible says everywhere about salvation. Next week, could you do that? Could you, could you go, could you read through all 66 books of the Bible and come next week with a paper written on what the whole entire Bible says about that subject? No. But now you could take a theologian who's done the hard work of organizing for you and you could read his chapters on soteriology, on salvation and he's going to tell you from Genesis to Revelation what the Bible has to say about salvation. So see, they've, they've done the work for you. So, you know, if, if people say, why do we even need a theology book? Why do we even study it? We have the Bible, well, true. I mean, again, all, all faithful theology books draw their, their material from the Bible. If Hopefully they're faithful to the Scripture. But you're not going to go home. None of us are going to go home and read the entire Bible this week and, and organize on our own what the Bible has to say about every single one of these doctrines. We're just not going to be able to do that in a short period of time, whereas a book on theology will help us. Uh, theology is done in the context of human culture, just like the Scripture is written in the context of human culture. God wrote his words to man. Theology is contemporary. It, it's got to speak to people today in their context. And theology is practical. Paul, Paul didn't lay out doctrine simply to offer information. He expounded doctrine for the purpose of transformation. Write down Romans 8. 28 and 29, uh, excuse me, 29 and 30, because in Romans 8, 29 and 30, Paul says that God's purpose is to conform us to the image of Christ. Everything God is teaching you, what God wants to do in your life, your, your relationships, the knowledge that he gives you, your circumstances, everything God does in your life, the goal the goal is to conform you to the image of Christ. Even if you're going through trials and tribulations in life, what's the goal? To conform you to the image of Christ. And so, so theology is to be very practical. Okay? So it's biblical, it's systematic, it's done in the context of human culture, it's contemporary, it's practical. Uh, Erickson goes on to talk about the necessity of theology. Correct doctrinal beliefs are essential in order to know God. God has chosen to reveal himself in certain ways. Christianity affirms that there is one way to know God. It's exclusive. Doctrine is important because of the connection between truth and experience. Experience is to be built on proper belief. Now folks, we live in an age where people overvalue experience. 
But what we need to be asking ourselves is our experience based upon God's truth. Sure, yes. So we need to judge experience based on truth. We don't judge things just on our experience. Okay? A correct understanding of doctrine is important because there are many religious systems of thought that compete for our devotion. Now, look at the screen again. In Christian theology, there is a basic assumption that drives us. First of all, the Bible is true. Evangelical Christians believe that the Bible is inerrant, meaning without mistakes in the original autographs. It's inerrant and infallible, not even capable of error in the original autographs. That a sovereign God is able to give us a revelation that is true, that's trustworthy, that's without error. We're not saying that versions of the Bible, all of them are, you know, some are better than others. Some versions may mistranslate a, a, a Hebrew or Greek word. Inerrancy applies to the original autographs. But in, in systematic theology, there's, there's the basic assumption that drives us, the Bible is true. Secondly, that the God who is spoken of in the Bible exists. And he's made it possible for us to know him. Okay, let me, just, let me just stop right there a minute. I've got a lot more to cover, okay? But I'm going fast. Do I need to slow down? Do you need to back up? Do you have a question about anything so far? Jim? Well, to pick a version of the Bible and claim that to be inerrant is just pure foolishness. I'm, I'm sorry, it is. Uh, there is no perfect version of the Bible. Uh, we get into this, you have four main text families. Uh, the Syrian or Byzantine text, the Alexandrian text, the Caesarean text, and the Western text. And, and to show you how these can differ. Uh, and, and by the way, all Bible, Bible translations and all, you know, 98% agreement. There may be some differences in, in one word is used here and another translation uses this. Now true, there are, like in the Byzantine or Syrian text family, you'll have the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8. That story is not in some of the other text families. 
So until 1611, you know, when the King James Version was first authorized, 1611, the years that immediately followed, you had the, the discoveries that had been made of ancient manuscripts. You had the Syrian text or the Byzantine text. Now we know, or archaeologists at least, and Bible scholars and textual critics believe, that the uh, Byzantine or Syrian text are actually later texts. What the goal is, you want to get back closer to the event. Now, that's not a perfect... We'll talk about that when we come to this. But hopefully, the closer you get to an event that's being recorded, that recording is going to be better. You know, if we leave here tonight and y'all record what happened in here tonight, and then I wait until next year to say, hey, y'all record what we did that first night of systematic theology, record what you remember. Hopefully your recording of it tonight is going to be better than what you record next year. So the Byzantine text, uh, the basis of the King James, later text. And there's some peculiarities about it that it's generally believed now among textual critical scholars it's not the best text family. Is it bad? Is my King James Bible faulty? No. They're just saying there's better ones than, you know, you have the other. Generally, the Alexandrian texts are considered the best. To show you some of the differences, the book of Acts in the Western text family is 10% longer than the book of Acts in the other three text families. So to say to, for somebody to claim that a version of the Bible is inerrant is just a poor understanding of how translations are done. It just is. Uh, the advantage that modern translations have, and, and of course there's some bad modern translations too, but the advantage they have, they take an eclectic approach. When they're sitting around and tr- doing a new translation of the Bible, they look at all four manuscripts of all four text families instead of just looking at one text family, and hopefully you arrive at a better end product. You had, what, did you have a question? Sure. And he, he, he's talking about the difficulty of correct understanding. One thing that is critical to getting a correct understanding when we come to the Bible is first of all, do what? Pray. Pray. And, and then what? Pray, humble. But, but what should we be doing with the text before we move on and try to come to conclusions? Read it, but keep going with that thought. Observe. The reporter's questions. Who, what, when, where, how. 
we read so quickly. We just read over something and we don't slow down and pay attention. We want to jump on to quickly what's it mean before we've really sat down and analyzed what a passage says. And what I'm saying, if it, to, to begin with the correct understanding, first of all, pray, ask God to direct you, but spend time observing. Read it, reread it, study it, read it in different translations. Uh, Compare scripture with scripture. Uh, If you're studying a book of the Bible and you want to know what some of the better commentaries are, email me. I'll I'll tell you. There's some great study tools out there. Somebody says, "Well, well, should I really even read commentaries? Well, we believe that God has given different gifts to the church, right? Some have been gifted to be what? Teachers. Do you think you can learn from a teacher? I hope so. If if there is somebody who is a noted authority, for instance, on the book of Romans, a noted authority in the world, and and it's an evangelical scholar, somebody who believes in the inerrancy of Scripture, and he or she is trying to be God-honoring in their work, if, if I want to do a thorough analysis of the book of Romans... I would be foolish not to turn to some of these people who've written books like that. So they can help you. You know, other believers, believers who have the gift of teaching, have have that knowledge and, and have studied the original languages and have studied the culture of that day and so forth and so on. We can learn a lot from them. So praying. Reading, reading, read read the same passage over and over and over and over and over again in different translations. Read the better commentaries and just observe before you start jumping on to what does this mean. First of all, uh, what does it say? And and then you have application. So you have observation, then interpretation, and then application. One of the silliest things we can do, and I want to be kind here, but to sit around in a circle in Sunday school, for instance, well, what do you think this means? Well, what do you think this means? Well, what do you what do you feel like it means? What do you feel like it means? Well, what do you feel like what do you feel like it means? Well, what do you, the text says what it says and means what it means. So we ought to try to get at what the text actually is saying and meaning, and then we can say now what does it mean to you in terms of. How does, how does this verse apply to you in your life right now? See, it can apply. That's where we get the differences. Because it can apply to me in one way, you in another way, you in another way, and you in another But that doesn't mean we have five different meanings. There's one meaning to the text. One meaning. So, again, correct, to get a correct understanding... Don't get in too big of a hurry. Pray. Read it in different translations. 
Find out some of the better commentaries by respected men and women who, who are seeking to honor God. And through all of the above, it helps us to arrive at a clear understanding of the text. But the key is, do we want to take that much time with the text? I hope we do. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, sometimes, I mean, I hear you, that does happen. Uh, but if you, if, you, if, you have, if you have some good, solid choices, commentaries, on the big rocks in that text, they should agree. Because, again, the, the words, the tenses, and all that doesn't change. They may, they may apply it differently or something of that nature, but hopefully they're not going to, you know, tell you it means different, different things because, like I say, the, the meaning, there's only one meaning. So, anyway. <laughs> yeah. Instead of asking, what do you think, you can, you can go around the room, how does this apply to you right now? How does this apply to you right now? How's this? But don't go around the room, what's this mean to you? What's this mean to you? What's this mean to you? Because that, that sets people up for thinking there's, there's a whole cadre of different meanings to the text, and there's not. I don't know, did I make a mess of that question, or did I, did I kind of partially answer it? Okay. Uh, anything else before I keep blazing the trail along? Because I don't want to leave you behind if there's still a question about anything we've covered so far. Yes. You have the, the Byzantine, uh, also known as the Syrian. You have the Alexandrian, the Caesarean, and the Western. Mm-hmm. That text families text families and there could there could be you know dozens or hundreds of manuscripts in that text family because it may have to do with uh, a family of manuscripts that was discovered in the same part of the world and all had similar characteristics to them as opposed to texts that were discovered somewhere else and had certain scribal characteristics to those. Okay. Uh, why should Christians study theology? First of all, Jesus commanded his disciples in the Great Commission that we are to teach all that he has commanded us. That means that the Great Commission is not simply involving evangelism, but the Great Commission is involving discipleship and training. And so in order to teach, we need to collect and summarize what his word says. Again, somebody says, can't I just go with my Bible in my hand? And the obvious answer is yes. 
Evangelicals since the time of the Reformation have held to the sufficiency of Scripture. Theology doesn't replace that. Theology, again, as I've tried to point out tonight, is simply the attempt to summarize in manageable chunks what the Bible is is saying. A second thing about why should Christians study theology. Studying theology will help us overcome wrong ideas. And folks, ideas have consequences. If we think wrong, we're going to act wrong. Thirdly, studying theology will help us make better decisions for our lives in the areas that matter most. And fourth, studying theology will help us grow as Christians. Studying theology will help us grow as Christians. Because the more we know of God and how He has related to mankind the more we will be able to adequately praise Him and worship Him and trust Him. Paul connects doctrine and godliness in 1 Timothy 6.3 where he speaks of the teaching which accords with godliness. Now, the, the methodology, let's talk about the method of theology. First of all, there is the collection of the biblical materials. Where do we begin? We begin with the text of Scripture. Sound exegesis should be done. And here again, here's where some good, faithful commentators can help you. Because... They've studied the biblical languages. And and again, folks, I I hope you know this too. All English translations are based on the biblical languages. The Old Testament is about 95%, probably more than 95%, Hebrew with some small portions of Aramaic in it, but mainly Hebrew. And uh, the New Testament is what? Greek. And then among Greek, among, uh, uh, I'm tongue-tangled. The categories of that language, you, you had the classical Greek. Is that what the New Testament is? No. The classical Greek, uh, I mean, uh, biblical Greek is Koine Greek. K-O-I-N-E. What's Koine Greek? Koine Greek was just the everyday Greek that people spoke on the streets. That's the language of your New Testament. Koine Greek. All English translations for the New Testament are based on the Greek manuscripts. So again, to do proper exegesis, uh, it, it helps. You know, after you've done your studies, I recommend you to do your studies first. But it helps to read some of these people who have skills in, in exegesis. So we collect the material, we do sound exegesis, the theologian is dependent on the biblical scholar, 
And then there's the unification of the biblical materials. We, we believe that God has spoken consistently. Obviously, he spoke to his people over a great deal of time through different human authors, but proper gathering and interpretation of the biblical text will reveal to us that God has not contradicted himself. There is a beautiful unity to the canon of Scripture, a unity that shouldn't surprise us at all. Because who's the divine author behind it all? God is. So collection, the unification of it, the analysis of the meanings of, of uh, the meaning of the biblical teachings and then the examination of historical treatments one of the great benefits the student has today is the opportunity to look back at how others who have gone before us have handled the text of scripture through the ages now when, when you look at that in terms of theology, uh, we said a while ago, Christology is the study of what? The person and work of Christ. If we were to look back through church history at, say, the different church fathers, the patristics, the church fathers, those men that, that came right after the age of the apostles and were church leaders... And, and we were to march all the way down through the Middle Ages and the Reformation up to modern times and study how doctrine has been handled through the ages. What kind of theology is that called? Historical theology. Okay? Historical theology. Historical theology is looking at how a doctrine has been dealt with through church history. So again, examination of historical treatments. Michael Horton in his theology, Pilgrim Theology, says, Others have been talking about God long before you or I entered into this discussion. Isn't that great? It is a, it is a historical arrogance and snobbery to think that Christians of the past don't have anything to teach us today and yet so oftentimes we act that way it, it's sad sometimes in church we act like church history started with, with Billy Graham One child said one time when asked about church history, she said, well, I, I think my pastor is 49 years old, so I guess that church history's been going on that long. No, church history's way before your pastor and way before Billy Graham, you know. And, and different believers through the ages, they've had volumes to say about these issues. We can learn from them. Absolutely. Many have lost their lives so that you and I today can have a Bible in our hands. Consultation of other cultural perspectives. 
We tend to view doctrine only from our context, which is understandable given the fact that this is where we live. But it can benefit us greatly to see how other believers across the globe in different settings have dealt with various doctrines. Then identification, or excuse me, I, I left one off, didn't I, did I? Yeah, identification of the essence of the doctrine. How was the doctrine expressed across various books of the Bible? How was the doctrine fulfilled in the New Covenant? For example, when it came to the sacrifice for sin, obviously Jesus Christ fulfilled the Old Testament sacrificial system. As the book of Hebrews tells us, the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away our sin. However, when it comes to sacrifices in the Bible, whether animals in the Old Testament or Jesus Christ now in the New Testament, what do we learn from sacrifice? What do we learn? We learn that sin cost. What's the book of Hebrews say? Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And so that's the essence of the doctrine. Whether we're studying a a passage in the Old Testament on sacrifice or we're looking at the New Testament, the sacrifice of Jesus, the essence of sacrifice in the Bible is what? Sin cost. Sin cost. And then illumination from sources beyond the Bible. For instance, what does creation tell us? Now, these these are not infallible sources. We believe the Bible is. But still, we want to look at, at, at other things. What Again, uh, what people have written, what creation tells us. What light can different disciplines today shed on something? All truth is God's truth. All truth is God's truth. There is is nothing we would find in science, true science, that would disagree with anything we're told in the Bible. The Bible's not a science textbook, but when it speaks on an issue related to science, it can be trusted. And, and science today, it, 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 doesn't dis, it shouldn't disagree if it's true science. Somebody's honestly looking at something because God doesn't contradict himself. God doesn't contradict himself in creation. He's created a, a world with patterns and so forth that we can trust, that we can look at and learn different things. Again, what others have said or some of these other sorts are not infallible like the Bible, but we can still get some valuable insights. Uh, then Gruden asked, how should Christians study theology? It's already been indicated, as we spoke about this a little earlier tonight, we should study theology with prayer. Psalm 119 verse 18 says, Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. That's an attitude that we ought to always go to the Bible with. God, open my eyes that I might see the wondrous things that you have for me. 
Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 2.14 that the unspiritual man does not receive the gifts of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So we desperately need the help of the Holy Spirit because we are not adequate on our own. And so when we study theology... We need to go into it with a prayerful attitude, a dependence on the Holy Spirit. And then also, somebody else indicated tonight, we should study it with a large degree of humility. A large degree of humility. I hope all of us, as we study God's Word and we study theology, we'll have a teachable spirit. I can learn from you, you can learn from me, we can learn from other Christian writers. We go into it humbly, realizing that not a one of us in here is omniscient. Now, we serve a God who's omniscient, but you and I are not. So we can gain a great deal from one another. And so there's the humility involved in realizing that and having a teachable spirit. Okay, now that was a quick flyover tonight. Quick introduction. Any questions? Any comments? You want me to go back over and, and talk about something before we close? Uh, I noticed. I, I, I noticed a. F- I noticed a few nods tonight. Not many, but a few nods tonight. When I mentioned that no English translation is perfect, one or two of you scowled. <laughs> do not. Do not create. A second doctrine of inspiration over an English translation. That's unfortunately, unfortunately what some have done. It's when we talk about the inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture, some have tried to attach that to certain translations of the Bible. I hope you won't do that. Questions, comments before we close. Right. Sure. That's why I say read a text in several translations. Again, the science of textual criticism has shown us, has demonstrated to us, that we have a Bible that we can depend upon. Many of the things are differences in words, differences in punctuation. Uh, Again, a, a longer passage, you know, whether or not you have four text families, you have one text family that the the story of the woman caught in adultery shows up in it doesn't in the others 
Is it an original story? Certainly what that passage teaches is true to what we know about the Lord Jesus. In his attitude to sinners, go and sin no more. You don't have any accusers, go and sin no more. You know, certainly faithful to what the Lord was all about. Is that probably uh, an original text of Scripture? It's not in the best manuscripts. What, what textual critics tell us are the best manuscripts. It's not there. But, but again, 98.9% it's the same. That there's agreement across all the different manuscripts. No, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, one 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 te- a translation committee sitting down may may translate a few words and a verb because language changes. The English language has changed. If if you were to show up in here tonight, if any of you had a sixteen eleven, it always tickles me to ride through these little country towns and and out on a church sign. We hold. We only use the sixteen eleven KJV. No, you don't. If you had the sixteen eleven KJV, you couldn't read it. If you've ever read the old ancient Middle English, you would know exactly what I'm talking about. Even the King James version has gone through numerous revisions. Uh, anyway, where was I going with that? What was <laughs> anyway? Translation committees sit down and, and and they'll study a verse and they'll study. They'll go word by word, phrase by phrase, verse by verse. And they're they're sitting around. T- and these are guys, men and women, both highly trained, highly skilled, and, and they're they're trying to give us a translation that is. Accurate and that is easy to understand and it is timely because language does the English language even changes through generations. I'm not threatened by different translations. I hope you're not either. I hope as you're studying a, your Sunday school lesson, you'll you'll read several translations because you'll get insights on how the different translation committees dealt with a certain word or a phrase or a verse. Right. Again, they they try to say how how can we be accurate? How is how is this word now used? That, for instance, if you were writing something today, now I'm not I'm not using a biblical illustration, but if you were writing something today, and and you were and you were using the word gay. 
75 years ago, what would everybody have said you were meaning? Happy. You use the word gay now, what's everybody going to... You're talking about a homosexual or a lesbian. Language changes. And, and that's all that translation committees are, are trying to do with translations. Trying to remain accurate and recognizing that language changes. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. So again, I say all this to say I hope you're not threatened by by different. I'm speaking collectively. I hope you're not threatened by different translations. You have three or four of them out as you're studying a text, and and you can you can see how different committees have dealt with the Hebrew and Greek words and phrases. That it's changed? No, the, 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 the Hebrew and the Greek words haven't changed. It's just how translators are trying to bring them over in, into language today in the best possible way. Right, right. <laughs> That's right, because you don't use that language anymore. <laughs> and and that's not a slam on the King James. Beautiful translation. Yeah, exactly. But nobody would today. Okay, next week we will start getting into different element. We'll be talking about, I'm not sure, I haven't decided whether we're going to talk about God first, theology proper, or bibliology, um, and talk about canon of Scripture. So I'll probably deal with bibliology and so forth, because again, that's where we learn about God. So we'll probably cover that next week two weeks from now, theology proper, and then we'll get into things like Christology and then pneumatology and the categories you have in your charts. We're supposed to close at 6.15. I'm four minutes late. David Fink closes in prayer.